Chapter 12 of The Red Cross Girls with the Stars and Stripes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Carol Sutton. The Red Cross Girls with the Stars and Stripes by Margaret Vandercook. Chapter 12, The Casino. The soldiers had brought in small branches of trees and whatever wildflowers they could find in the countryside. The wild asters were in bloom and a few cornflowers and some wild trillium so that the bouquets were of tricolor. At the back of the stage in the casino hung two great flags, one of the French, the other of the United States. The flags were the property of the American hospital but Eugenia had loaned them to Barbara under the promise that they were to be treated with a special care. The chief decoration, however, hung suspended above the front of the stage. This was a great wreath made from leaves as nearly like the laurel as could be found and tied with two great bows of ribbon, the one showing the design of the French, the other the design of the American flag. This wreath and another smaller one, which was at present not on display, represented many hours of work by the Red Cross nurses at Eugenia's hospital. But the wreath had been Barbara's idea. Indeed, she had revealed herself as a fairly good general in the amount of work and enthusiasm she had inspired other people into exhibiting toward making her entertainment for the American soldiers an unusual success. The paramount difficulty was that the casino could hold only a limited audience and that the entire camp of American soldiers would have liked to have been present as well as the adjoining French camp. But at least Barbara understood some of the rules of the game, for she had left the selection of the audience entirely to the discretion of the officers at camp, only reserving the privilege of inviting Madame Castaigne and the staff of nurses and physicians at her own American hospital. However, Madame Renane was Eugenia's guest, and in a measure the guest of the American hospital staff, and as Barbara was one of the Red Cross nurses, it was natural they should feel a kind of proprietary interest in the occasion. The patients at the hospital who were sufficiently convalescent were also invited. Among them was Lieutenant Martin, who asked Nona Davis as a special favor if she would go with him and sit next to him during the performance. As a matter of fact, Nona would greatly have preferred accompanying Madame Castaigne and Mildred Thornton. Madame Renane was to be with them and remain with them until her part of the program, and Nona would have enjoyed the opportunity of knowing the great Frenchwoman more intimately. Nevertheless, she did not feel that she could refuse Lieutenant Martin, as he was still her patient and had not been out of doors except to walk for a few yards at a time. So as to secure their places before the crowd of soldiers appeared, he and Nona started a little earlier than the others. On their way to the casino, Nona became the more convinced that she might not have so agreeable an evening. For however much she might be trying to conceal the fact, Lieutenant Martin was again not in especially amiable humor. 
although recently he had been showing more self-control. Neither was he in sympathy with the prospect ahead of him. Seems utter nonsense to me, Miss Davis, this business of coddling soldiers and keeping them amused as if they're children and needed toys. Surely there is work enough to keep everybody occupied, and we should all be tired enough to wish to go to bed when work is over. Nona shook her head. Nonsense, Lieutenant. I hoped you intended to reform since your illness and become a more popular officer. I had a talk with your colonel, and although he seems to like you pretty well, I'm convinced he believes your stern views are simply due to the fact that you are so young and have had so little experience of life. The colonel is a dear himself. I nearly fell in love with him. Pretty soon you will be going back to work, so please promise me to remember that you yourself have not always been so averse to being amused, even to being coddled during these past weeks, and Nona laughed with a faint suggestion of teasing. She liked Lieutenant Martin, but he was too narrow and too self-assured, requiring to be snubbed now and then, and Nona had the subtle knowledge, which most girls and women do have, that he would accept occasional discipline from her rather better than from anyone else. She saw him flush a little now at her speech. It was still not dark, and they were walking slowly. Oh, well, I have been ill, and a man is unlike himself when he is ill, he answered, trying not to display temper. But Nona did make him angry, perhaps oftener than she knew, although she was every once in a while aware of it. But Nona's coolness, her little air of aloofness after doing her full and complete duty as a nurse, would have annoyed any man who chanced to believe he was falling in love with his nurse. However, Lieutenant Martin meant to go slowly and circumspectly, being determined in the end to have his way. He had not forgotten Nona's attitude toward him, nor her words, when he had once or twice ventured too far in his revelations. Patients who are convalescing always think they are in love with their nurses. Please spare me the illusion, was a never-to-be-forgotten reply. I will try to make the men in camp like me better if it is possible when I return, he answered. It is not agreeable, is it, to be unpopular? But then you have never known that misfortune, Lieutenant Martin continued, with such humility and good humor that it was Nona who felt reproached. You have read Vanity Fair, of course, Miss Davis. Funny I keep thinking of certain portions of it tonight. That is because my mind is ever upon this war. But you do remember when Amelia and George Osborne and Dobbin and Becky and Sir Rodden Crawley were all in Brussels, and there was a great ball given by a duchess on the night of June 15, 1815, the night before the Battle of Waterloo. That night there were many people more interested in the ball than the enemy at the front. I always recall the command that came. The enemy has passed the somber, and our left is already engaged. We are to march in three hours. I keep hoping and waiting for a message of that kind, only I trust our American soldiers will be in camp and ready to march on the night that command reaches us. Nona shivered a little. Please don't talk of war tonight. 
Of course, I long for our American soldiers to get into action. I mean, great numbers of them, not just the comparatively few soldiers such as are here now. Nevertheless, I think I dread the moment when that word shall come more than almost anything in life. I shall worry over you too, Lieutenant Martin. You see, one is always especially interested in one's patience. Thank you, Lieutenant Martin answered so sternly that Nona was a little embarrassed and a little amused. No, I had forgotten that part of Vanity Fair, she added quickly. I only remember the conclusion, which I learned by heart when I was a small girl and took a more misanthropic view of life. Oh, one which of us is happy in this world? Which of us has his desire or having it is satisfied? Unconsciously known aside as one naturally would after expressing such a sentiment, but she was stirred out of her self-centered mood by Lieutenant Martin suddenly stopping and directly facing her. That is nonsense. When Thackeray expressed a sentiment like that, he was simply tired and disappointed with his own work for the moment. Life isn't all vanity, and it means a great deal to do one's task once it has started. Besides, finding love means happiness, and love and work are the fulfillment of desire. As for being satisfied, no one wishes to be satisfied who has any brains. Then observing that Nona appeared even more than mildly surprised by such a wholly unexpected outburst, Lieutenant Martin laughed. That does not sound like me, does it? You scarcely look for a sentiment of that character for me. Well, I realize your friend Mr. Dawson would have expressed the idea far better, and it may be impertinent for a soldier to differ with the great novelist's philosophy of life. However, I have said exactly what I feel. You see, as a soldier, I, like a fighter, never a quitter in any cause. But by this time, Nona and Lieutenant Martin had reached the casino, where Barbara and Molly Drew, who were already there, found them seats. Later, Nona was pleased by the places Barbara had chosen, for after Eugenia and Madame Renee and Mildred arrived, she discovered that she had a fairly distinct view of them. Tonight, Eugenia looked unusually tired and worn in spite of her determined effort at animation and the entertainment of her guests. But then anything apart from the regular routine of her hospital work appeared to arouse in Eugenia unhappy memories. This large gathering of gay and comparatively untried soldiers could not but fill one with the recollection of what the French soldiers had suffered in the past three years. Surely the American boys would be spared an equal ordeal. Madame Renee Nona found oddly interesting. She was plain, as many French women are, according to our American standards. She must have been nearly middle-aged and was even a little stout. Her brown hair, which was arranged simply, had some gray in it. Her face was pale, her expression quiet, except for her eyes. They mirrored a hundred emotions, a hundred ideas. She sat very quietly beside Eugenia during the first of Barbara's entertainment, applauding with as much enthusiasm and abandon as anyone in the audience at the conclusion of each act, not all of which were of a professional character. 
The chorus of American soldiers whom Lieutenant Kelly had trained, led by Guy Ellis, sang almost every well-known American patriotic air of the French and American soldiers cheering wholeheartedly without favoritism. Then Molly Drew, looking very pretty in a white dress with her red-brown hair piled high on her head, and her cheeks flushed from excitement to a deep rose, sang in a small voice her two most popular Irish ballads, Mother McCree and a Little Bit of Ireland. In the last rows of seats, it was impossible to hear her, However, this did not take away from the applause she received from every listener in the room. Molly refused to sing an encore, but returning to bow her thanks to the audience, a soldier presented her with a great bouquet of red hothouse roses. Not many roses were blooming these days in this neighborhood in France. Besides, Molly's roses bore the unmistakable suggestion of Paris. But then, although Guy Ellis was only a private in the American Army in France, his father was a New York millionaire and intensely proud of his son, and Molly scarcely needed to find the card hidden inside. A quartet of French soldiers from the nearest French camp, all of them with well-trained voices, sang the Marseille as an introduction to Madame Renée's appearance. She had disappeared from the audience before they began, and after the last verse, when her countrymen had gone, she came quietly out on the improvised stage. It may be that certain of the American soldiers were disappointed in Madame Renée's appearance, having expected someone younger and more beautiful, but this did not interfere with the united cheer with which they greeted her. The entire audience rising to its feet, and the soldiers waving their hat. Madame Renée had been accustomed to many greetings, but the surprise and the ardor of this one seemed almost to unnerve her for a moment. Then she removed a little American flag which had been pinned to her dress and waved it enthusiastically in response to the cheers. When the audience had resumed their seats and were quiet again, the great French woman said simply, speaking of course in French, but as slowly as she could that the soldiers might understand. It is a great pleasure to me that you wish to hear me recite to you tonight. I am a French mother who has lost her son in this war. All honor to the American boys who have left their homes and come to a far country to help us toward victory. Let France be your adopted country. Let every Frenchwoman be your adopted mother until your own land and your own mother shall claim you again. What Madame Renée said was so simple that any other woman could have used the same words, but behind her words was the personality of a great woman and in her voice the music of a great actress. Next she recited a gay little French poem filled with the courage and good humor of life in camp. Then Madame Renée spoke again. It has been difficult to decide what to recite to you tonight. A speech from one of my plays might not interest you if you were not familiar with the story, since I cannot speak your language. But there is one story which the whole world knows the story of perhaps the greatest soldier 
and Patriot of France. I mean the story of Jeanne d'Arc. There are those of us in France who have wished recently that Jeanne would come to us again or someone like her. Afterwards, Madame Lenaine recited in the words of a great French writer, The Life of Jeanne, the Main Sin to God. And the angel appeared unto her, and the maid understood. The humble maid, knowing not how to ride a horse, unskilled in the arts of war, is chosen to bring to our Lord his temporal vicar of Christ. Henceforth, Jeanne knew what great deed she was to bring to pass. Madame Renane told the entire story from Jeanne's first vision at Domremy, her meeting with King Charles at Rheims, and her instant recognition of him, distinguished in shabby clothes and hid from her among his courtiers. She told of Jeanne's victories, of her triumphs, and of her martyr's death. And as she spoke, the great French actress seemed to be Jeanne herself. The American soldiers forgot her middle age, her quiet half-mourning costume, and saw that wonderful young peasant girl, first in her peasant's dress in the woods near her father's home, listening to her voice. She was only a dreaming girl then, with her short hair, her bare feet, and peasant smock, and those great wide-open gray eyes. Then John, as a soldier, in a suit of armor, on her wonderful white horse, riding always in front of her troop to the glory and salvation of France. At the last, she is again a frightened girl, torn from her friends, betrayed and forsaken. The room was perfectly still for a moment after Madame Renée had finished, for she had created an impression too vivid to be lost immediately. The American boys and the French companions were seeing not the modern battlefield which was ever before their thoughts, but the older one the great actress had intended them to see. However, Madame Renane stood waiting, perhaps expecting the applause with which she was familiar. Then she recognized the silence as the finer tribute, for she put out her hands in a beautiful gesture and added, May I say one of Jean's own prayers to you tonight before my farewell? O Jesus Christ, who has surrounded the heavens with light and kindled the sun and the moon, command, if it be thy will, the martyrs, not one only, but all, to clasp their hands and on bended knee to remove the great sorrow from France, and by that holy and august merit ordained, that they may have a righteous peace. Then Madame Renane, with a little nod of appreciation and thanks, quickly left the stage. She came back later to receive the smaller laurel wreath, which Lieutenant Kelly presented her in the name of the American camp. But like the French woman she was, after holding it for a moment and pressing her lips to the evergreen, she flung the wreath back into the audience. Keep it, my Sammy, she explained, for the laurels of France are for you. However, when after a few moments Eugenia Castaigne joined the great French woman, she found her deeply depressed. Ah, oh, she murmured, you have asked me here to amuse your American boys, and what have I done? If I have done anything, I have made them sad. 
You do not want a French tragedy in these days. What you want is your Charlie Chaplin. And she spoke with such a funny combination of sorrow and chagrin. And Withel pronounced Charlie Chaplin's name with such an amusing French accent that Eugenia, who had been sternly holding back her tears all evening, broke into a laugh. We may have Charlie Chaplin many evenings, you but one, Madame Renane, and you are mistaken if you do not know you have given us the highest kind of pleasure, which is inspiration. When the greater number of the audience had departed, Nona and Lieutenant Martin walked slowly out together. Lieutenant Martin was tired and did not feel equal to talking to many of his comrades. However, Madame Bonnet and Bertha were waiting near the door to speak to him, and as Bertha's recitation had been one of the most successful of the evening, Lieutenant Martin felt he must congratulate her. They were talking only a moment or two, but Nona stood a little apart. She was glancing carelessly about when she saw standing only a few feet behind Madame Bonnet a little French girl holding a French soldier by the hand. Another moment, she continued staring and then touched Lieutenant Martin on the arm, directing his attention to what had attracted hers. Madame Bonnet observed them both. Why are you both so interested, she asked. It cannot be possible you know my little French girl. She wandered into our camp only two or three days ago, bringing a French soldier with her. Some poor fellow who has been injured and has forgotten his own history. She says they have been tramping from village to village, hoping to find his regiment or someone who would recognize him. People have been kind to them everywhere and have fed them along the way. It seems the French soldier was stripped of his uniform, his number, everything that might identify him. Only his little friend insists upon calling him captain. They came to the American camp by mistake, leaving at a French one. Then some of the soldiers brought them to me, and I am caring for them before they move on again. Nona went over to the little girl and held her out her hand. Jean, she began, you will not recognize me, but I saw you one day from the car window, and we talked to each other. It is late tonight, but I am coming to Madame Benet's tomorrow to talk to you again, if I may. Jean made a little curtsy. I do remember, and I shall be happy to see you, she returned with unfailing French courtesy. End of chapter 12, read by Carol Sutton, Knox, PA, February 14, 2022.